Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Castelli. I am your host, Joe Robinson, and joining me down the other end of the cable is my co-host, James Spender. James, how are you? I want to know how you're doing, how you're holding up. We're about to go into a second month-long lockdown. Uh, Times can be hard at the moment for everyone. So I just wanted to check in on you before we get into the podcast. See how you're doing. Uh, It's not been the best news, has it? But we all knew it was coming. So there is that. We are prepared this time. I'm strangely optimistic that maybe this will be the month where I just smash it like it's a kind of training camp. I get really good sleep. I get out on my bike early doors. Maybe I even do two sessions a day. I could do a cycling session in the morning, a strength and conditioning session. In the evening, I could throw in some yoga. I could eat really well. Or I could sit about and watch films. I could get really distracted and fail to complete any real work, except for maybe changing the sheets in my bed and really start using my Amazon Prime again, which I hate because I hate Jeff Bezos. Sorry, (laughs) Jeff, but mate, come on. And yeah, just sit there drinking and simultaneously ordering more alcohol in order to drink it the next night and it will get delivered within about 24 hours. So who knows? Watch this space. But so far, so good because I have uh, been down in Portsmouth seeing my lovely parents and I've been swimming in the sea Mm. and that has just made everything better there is actually some really good research that links mental health with cold water. And yeah. that sounds kind of bananas, but they've done some stuff with some uh, open open water swimming groups uh, around, around there's some in London, there's a couple um, couple down in Brighton. And yeah, they, they measure the base of these people's happiness. And it is definitely linked to going swimming in really cold water. So have that. And the water will be extra cold at the moment because we're descending fully into winter. I mean, it's dark out as we record, and it's only ten to five. It is. It is. That was a that was a weird thing. I came back to my flat, and I was like, "What? Where's that hour gone?" And I was like, "Oh yeah," because I was away when the clocks changed. Uh, and it's funny. Remember when, when I was there was a point in my life where I relished the clocks going um, back. That's right, mm. isn't it? Yeah, going back in order to have an extra hour in bed. Whereas these days I find in the summer anyway, you know, you relish them kind of going forward because you're like, yeah, cool, longer days. I, so uh, I guess, guess we're all growing up, aren't we? Yeah, I enjoy how they're like, you know what, for an extra hour of bed in bed one Sunday in October, we're going to take, we're going to plunge you into six months of darkness and depression um, <laughs> with daylight savings. That doesn't really make sense anymore to me. Um, but who cares? Um so how are you, mate? What's what's been uh, what's been cracking? I heard that uh, you've you've been having an interesting time with the old C nineteen. Yeah, so I'm currently recording from isolation. Unfortunately, I was contacted by NHS NHS Test and Trace this weekend and told I was in uh, in contact with someone who's tested positive. Um, so therefore, I am now at home for the next 14 days, I believe. The guidance isn't too clear. I can't really work out. I went and got a test earlier anyway. Um, so we'll see how that goes. So I've got 14 days of sort of knocking about the house, doing not much. I can't go on a training camp. I haven't got a turbo in my new flat yet. So it's just going to be loads of, loads of sit-ups, loads of squats, bodyweight squats, and watching cycling on uh on YouTube, I think. Well, yeah, there you go. You can watch some watch some good. You can watch that film that's supposed to be coming out called The Rider. Yeah, which 
isn't that directed or something to do with Pat McQuaid's son? Is that right? Uh, no, it's his, isn't it his brother? One of the McQuaid, McQuaid clan. So there's about 10 of them are involved in professional cycling in some form or another. One's Andy, who's the son, is an agent of basically every rider in the peloton. Then there was obviously Pat, who is the UCI president. One of them's a sort of a, been a team manager. Um, but they're like the Jacksons. What the Jacksons were to the music industry in the 80s, McQuaid <laughs> to cycling, professional cycling these days. I've often, I've often seen that parallel, but I'm glad that you've pointed that out for our listeners. Yeah. So there is some similarities there. Um, anyway, let's talk about today's episode because we've got quite a good one today. Um, we've got a special guest on. He's called Ben Tullett. He's 19 and he's probably Britain's next big thing in terms of road cycling. So, you know, this summer, Geraint Thomas, Chris Froome, two stalwarts of the professional peloton, you know, they have eight grand tours between them. Both of them were left out of Ineos Grenadiers Tour de France team. Um, and when that happened, questions were asked as to whether, you know, this great British cycling bubble that we've experienced since 2012 had, had finally burst. You know, for the first time in a very long time, there wasn't going to be a British contender for the overall at the Tour de France. Well, fast forward a few months and a 25-year-old called Theo Gagenhartz just won the Giro d'Italia. As we record, a 26-year-old called Hugh Carthy is carving things up at the Vuelta Espana. There's a 29-year-old called Lizzie Banks, who's one of the most exciting riders in the women's peloton. Then you've got 21-year-old Tom Pidcock, who basically wins any race he wants to at any genre when he wants. Um, and then the latest off of this conveyor belt is Ben Tollett. Uh, so he's 19, and this year he became the youngest rider since 1909 to finish Liège Bastion on Liège. And he finished 35th at Flesh Alone, which happened to be his first ever race at World Tour. So we got him on just to talk about being really young and being a professional rider and what that entails and how much he's enjoying balance in cyclocross and, and road and being a teammate of Matteo van der Poel because he's an Alperson Phoenix rider. Um, but before we get onto that interview, which is great, uh, we're going to run through a few things that we've been liking in the cycling world and a few things we haven't been liking in the cycling world over the last couple of weeks. So you know what I have been really enjoying? Before I went into isolation, um, I got hold of my first ever road bike that I'd ever bought with my own money, James, um, which was a 2013 Chinelli Experience. So aluminium frame made by Columbus, the Tube Masters. Really simple. I think it cost me like 650 quid a long What's time the whole, ago. The whole bike. The whole bike cost me 650 quid, which is incredible because it had wow. Campagnolo Veloce on it. And any bike with Campagnolo on is almost like always a grand at least. Don't know how I got this deal through Wiggle years and years and years ago. And it's it's that was the bike that really got me into road cycling in terms of like practicing it as a sport. Before then, I was just like watching it as a pro sport and keeping an eye on things that way. But buying that Chinelli when I was like what, just coming out of sixth form, uh, was really what got me into the sport. But anyway, I went home the other week and I found it in the shed. And I was like, you know what I need to do? I need to rebuild this. So what this I'm really good. enjoying at the moment is is rebuilding the first ever bike I owned. I have so many amazing memories that I've made on that bike. And I'm halfway through the process of rebuilding that bike to be rideable again. And a lovely new bike. Um. I do hear that you have decided you're going to put tubulars on it. Right, yeah. So 
So, Which so, I feel is going to completely undermine you ever using it ever again. Because is there ever a good day to go out on a ride with tubs? Well, yes. Yeah, so like, yeah, maybe today's the day I punch her. So well, I mean, I've got a pair. Yes, yes, I have got a pair of Campagnolo Bora Ultra 50mm deep tubular t- wheels on it with 19mm tyres. Yes. Yes, that's not that convenient when you live in Kent or don't race. But I don't really care. It looks really cool. <laughs> and <laughs> There's not, nothing more pro than riding around on uh, a busted tub on the rim. No, 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 James. There's nothing. The James, there's nothing more cool than having your beloved other half come out an hour's drive to come pick you up because you've busted a tub. Yeah, no, fair enough. That's... Or even that my, my uncle, uh, who is obviously a lot older than me, so my mum's brother, told me that, you know, way back when... Um, They'd actually sometimes fix these things by the roadside. Can you imagine oh, that? No. So this undoing, undoing undoing it with a little with a little needle thread, oh. packing up a tube, and then sewing it back up again. And then, of course, you realise that you nipped it when you're sewing it back up, and then you got to do the whole thing again. Mm. So, see, this is what brings me on to the things I don't like, James. Right? Go on, then, go on, then. The things I don't like is my lack of ability when it comes to bike maintenance and mechanics. Which so, is going to really, really hamper you when you're not able to leave your house. To seek any help. So I think I've, I've hit a brick wall here, right, in the rebuild this bike. So I, I sort of stripped the frame down. That was kind of okay. Um, I T-cutted the frame to clean it up. That's all right. I then managed to put on the, a new stem and handlebars, a new seat post. That's all fine. But I've I've maxed out now. So I got, I got the cassette onto the wheel. But now I've got to do the chain and recable and stuff like that. I'm completely at a loss. Um, so until I can come out of lockdown, I can't visit my local bike shop to get it done for me. So now I'm just staring at a half finished bike, wanting it to be ready. That's quite. That's a bit sad. Although I don't know if yeah. there's any any um, furloughed bike mechanics in in Kent that might want to pop round Joe's house. And you could, if you left it outside for a couple of days then the COVID would die. Yeah, I could just repel it down my balcony yeah. and then you can work on it in the little green outside my house. Okay, winner. And then I'll, I don't know, I'll like bank transfer you a hundred pounds. Is that how it works? Is that, can that, can that be how it works? Yeah, but, I think, I think, I think basically, well, I think most people probably want to take cash at the moment because if you're uh, getting furlough payments. Fair enough. But then cash is where, um, you can have uh, the COVID sit on the cash, right? You can have COVID sit on the cash. That is it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I anyway, so I'm, you know, I'm enjoying rebuilding this bike, but what it has made me do is when, once this is all over, once COVID's all over, I really want to get some maintenance, like sort of training. I want to go to like a course. I want to be able to do more stuff on my bike. Cause I love use. I do really like using local bike shops and I appreciate that that's really important. Don't get me wrong, but there's just a few things where it's like, oh, life would be so much easier if I just knew how to do that. I'll tell you what, though, there is, and this goes for anyone in your position, there's definitely, I mean, you can Google bike maintenance courses in my area, and there will be some. There'll be ones that are SciTech level, which is like a kind of guild-style qualification that actually means something mm. in the industry. Ooh, do I get to put names, up, like letters after my name? Yeah, yeah, BSC ONS, third. Yeah. I guess you probably got a uni, didn't you? Uh, and then, yeah, then SciTech Level 2, um, NVQ in catering. That's that's underneath my name, by the way. Um, but also, most bike shops, 
are going to be doing a lot of they will they will do things like a morning on a saturday or and you'll find out if you ask that they are probably already doing these things just not really advertising them that well for a couple of people after hours to show them how to yet yeah, um change a cassette on a bike or recable a rear derailleur whatever it is so it's always worth asking um but equally you know if you don't know what you're doing go to a bike shop because let's face it it's less of a headache and we should all try and be safe and not kill ourselves by poor maintenance well well i mean just to let you know why i need to go to a bike shop um i put what i thought was the brake cable through the front brake turns out i had put the uh rear mech cable through there so nice i I mean i quite like it's a bit like a friction shifter isn't it if you why if you put a brake cable through through the brake lever but you run it into your derailleur then you can slowly squeeze the brake lever to get to the required sprocket and just hold it there with your hand mm. and release to change sprocket it's actually slightly better i've found than the indexed gearing and then of course the indexing is great because you can lock your brake on so you go click 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 and it goes on 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 on, on more, more 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 and then it's just on mm. and then you can leave it you can just leave it on you don't have to worry about holding it down and then when you want it off again you can back it off in little 11 or 12 speed click 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 so there's something there's something in that i think you're ahead of your time so don't Thank worry you. about don't worry too much don't sweat the small stuff you've just got a different system talking of sweating the small sweating the small stuff easy for me to say what are you liking at the moment james because you have been able to go outside and ride bikes and do stuff i've been able to go outside and ride bikes and do stuff which means i've been able to go and do it in the rain which means i have been able to get some punches because the rain loves punches as punches love the rain because it washes all those little bits of glass i don't know who in britain is smashing so many bottles but they are and then when it rains it gets washed into uh, the road and mm. then it gets lubricated slightly by the water so p- tires do punch more easily yeah the, the roads of the roads of the uk are like a greek restaurant floor in the winter they are, but just but without the laughter. Mm. So there's so the punches haven't been great. However, what I have really been liking is old school punch repair kits, man. They are amazing. Like uh, like your sandpaper and pencil. Your sandpaper, your pencil. The pencils so you can draw diagrams of what you're going to do. So you've got something and you can reference back to like good repairs and bad repairs and what happened went wrong. So that's what the pencil's there for, if anyone's ever wondering. Now, the sandpaper is obviously there to... Uh, you know flat back the tire get a little bit of a key but basically it just works really well it's a proper fix the number of times i've used um uh glueless patches which is a misnomer because they do have glue on them they just don't use the vulcanizing agent separately in a tube anyway glueless patches yeah they'll get you home so let's look at it that way they get you home fixes but eventually they they blow off they start leaking because you just don't get that good a bond but like good old-fashioned vulcanizing uh cement and like a proper patch that you could probably do a tractor tire with that's what i want and Mm. there's nothing more satisfying than knowing that you've taken one of the lightest tubes on the market in the lightest bike currently out there with disc brakes which is a specialized athos that i'm riding at the moment and you just added 50 grams with your repair (laughs) to the tube but the tube at the same time hasn't gone in a bin so anyway that's what i've been really liking Proper. I just I want to interject there and say one of my first ever memories of meeting you, James. Yes, three and a bit years ago, was you taking a tube out of a, a test bike, which I want to say was a, a Villiers Chateau Ten Air, 
um, and you affixing what was at that time the fourth patch to said tube before then putting it back into the to the tire and into onto the wheel and then learn, sort of riding to live another day with that multi-patch t- tube and you telling me as well one of the first things you said to me was like i don't just change the inner tube i'll always repair always, always. repair it so always. you're a man of your word james spender yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I dread to think how many I've thrown away in my lifetime before I sort of adopted this mentality. But it's a good thing to do, actually, in the winter. Take all, you know, you, you do want to be taking a trusty, trusted tube out as a repair, as a, sorry, as a spare on a ride. You don't want to be chancing, like, oh, I don't know if this one, like, if this repair is taken, whatever. Mm. Uh, so I do tend to replace it with a new tube and then come back home and fix it later. So I end up with a pile. It's quite a nice thing to do in the winter, actually. Sit yourself down in front of a film you've seen before and go through your tubes and patch them. I mean... I've just said that now, and I'm already thinking, man, I need to improve my life. Mate, we get, we're all going into lockdown, so actually, <laughs> yeah. it's the perfect it's the perfect pastime. Yeah, 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 yeah true. Um, so yeah, that's me. Although I've, within within this whole uh, conversation about um, cycling outside in the wet, which it has been, I have also really been loving good technical fibers. A nice jacket is always a a joy. Uh, but one of the things that Every single time, every winter, I forget about is how rubbish overshoes are. <laughs> I don't understand why you can't. Why can't people make a good overshoe? And for that, I mean, the zip number one has to last more than like three goes. Yeah, hundred so percent. I've never not broken the zip on a set of overshoes. Yeah. And then number two, don't put a seam anywhere near the front of the shoe. Right. <laughs> so. You don't want to see them going just across the ankle or going up the middle or whatever because they're just not properly... T- it just leaks water. Immediately, it leaks water. And I get it, all right? There is going to be water that comes up underneath through the sole of your shoe. And to that, I say, do have a look at the bottoms of your shoes. Do yourself a favour and get some electrical tape to tape up all the old um, little holes. Good. That's a good uh, bodge for that. Good Because that's yeah. my, big thing with, my big thing with overshoes is that... I've had some over the years that have been excellent at keeping like the sort of the tops of my shoe and my ankles dry, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because water always just comes up through the the patch missing so that your cleat can come through or your heel and then just finds its way into a hole and then you've got damp socks anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're saying just a little bit of electrical tape, I, I might take to that. That's a good idea. Yeah, give it a go. I mean, invariably, everything always leaks eventually because water is just, water's incredible at getting places. Mm. But sometimes I just feel like I would be better off with a couple of Tesco's bags and some gaffer tape. Like, <laughs> overshoes are just, they're just so badly designed. So please, please, cycling world, please make some nice overshoes. Although we have got some good ones coming in um, over the next couple of months. We've been emailed by a few people. So uh, maybe, maybe some of them will be good. Good. Don't hold out much hope so today's guest is the next big thing coming out of the british racing scene earlier this year aged just 19 he became the youngest rider to finish liege baston liege since 1909 racing for the alperson fenix team and a few days before that he finished 35th at flesh for his first ever crack at a world tour one day race 
He's a two-time junior cyclocross world champion and current national under 23 cyclocross champion. But most importantly, he's the course record holder of the Q10 27 Wednesday Bexley 10, just outside of Brands Hatch at the time of 21.09. Welcome, Ben Tullett. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> ben Tullett, the 21.09 on the, on the Q10 27. For anyone who knows that 10-mile time trial, that's a... That kilometer climb out of the gate—it's a hard, hard race. Yeah, I think I think it was actually a twenty-one oh two, but I'll let you off on that one. Twenty-one oh two. You'll have to take that with Bexley CC because on their website you need to you get on the phone to them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I did that back in um, two thousand and eighteen. I mean, yeah. it's such a good, such a good um, ten-mile TT. I mean, just up for five miles and down for five miles. I mean, it's so savage especially on the way out where you have to climb all the way up to the roundabout I mean I really enjoy it always giving that a good crack on a Wednesday evening for, for, so for the listener um me and me and Ben we live in the same area and the Bexley 10 is our local time trial but unlike your usual like dual carriageway out and back this one is on a savage well it starts at like a seven percent hill up to Brands Hatch and then you're quite as you said you climb for the first five miles and it's so slow that you turn around and you, I think when you turn around, you don't come under like 50k an hour if you're giving it yeah. some. And then you've got that descent to finish, which is firstly really exposed from wind, very fast. And there's always like loads of lorries. So in classic time travel in fashion in the UK. So that is a proper brutal course. So when, every, when you set that, I remember when you set that time, Ben, everyone was like, fair play. He's the next big thing if you can do that at the Bexley 10. Yeah, I mean, it's just so much fun to just go up there every Wednesday and it's such a friendly atmosphere up there. It's competitive, but everyone's just enjoying themselves. And yeah, it's just 21 minutes of sheer pain and agony. And you just know you have to go really hard at the beginning. And did you ride that? Were you riding on junior gears when you set that record? I think I was, yeah, yeah. Because the guy you beat, I believe Neil Lauder, his name is, he's like a local uh, I, I believe he put a 55 tooth chain ring on for the like because of that like that descent is so fast. He held the record for I think all of like two and a half minutes, and then you yeah you took it off of him. So <laughs> having ridden on junior gears, <laughs> yeah, I think I was spinning pretty fast on that day. <laughs> it's mental. James, <laughs> James, you should give it a go, mate. Next time you're down. Well, I do. I think I've ridden part of it. Uh, the downhill bit, obviously, the nice bit. Um, I know the one you mean. It goes off the kind of side of Donkey Lane, right? Yeah, it does. That's one of the roads that intersects. Fantastically named road. That is quite a little technical descent. Um, yeah, no, uh, fair play to anyone going up that hill because it, it is a fast fast hill to come down. But when, when was the last time you did that, Ben? Do you, do you oh. now go down in your uh, Alps and Phoenix kit and you're tricked out? bike and really um really handy yeah, speed max yeah. yeah you can in speed max yeah the speed max is super fast i'm really impressed with it i must say um unfortunately I haven't been able to do it this year because due to the covid they haven't mm. been able to run it so much so that's a big shame but hopefully they can uh get it back up and running next year and i'll certainly be up there on a wednesday evening giving it my best Oh, it's incredible. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming on today, Ben. Uh, spending, taking a little bit of time. Obviously, your season's over and over and done with now. But you had a really exciting season. This was your first ever year pro. Uh, you're 19 years old. Uh, you were 18 when you turned pro. 
uh, and your first ever year pro um for a lot of people that's just about getting to know bike racing a little bit better what it's like to be a pro but for you you got ended up being thrown in the deep end um and this year you became the youngest finisher of liege baston liege since which is the oldest monument on the calendar since 1909 um now, the winner in 1909 was a man called Victor Fastre. He was, I think he was like 10 days younger than you. Uh, so he was like 19 and 29 days. He actually won that race. But uh, you averaged um, 11 kilometers faster and rode 20 kilometers further. So, you know, the jury's out on which was harder. But how, how was that? How was racing a monument at 19? And like one of the hardest ones of, of, of all as well. Yeah, I think one of the strangest things was looking at that race and seeing that it was 260 kilometers because what I realized after the race was 260 kilometers is so different to even just 200 kilometers or 210 kilometers what I'd raced two or three times previously to race in Liège but that extra 50 or 60 kilometers is just a world of difference especially after already doing 150 kilometers in the Ardennes before you hit the really hard final hundred kilometers of the race. And that's mm. really where the race is made at the, at the final. That's where, you know, Lara do is Rochefort Focon is all of the big climbs of the race. They're all literally in the final 50 kilometers of the race. So you have to be fresh for hitting those climbs if you want to have a result there also. Mm. So with, with, with those climbs, do you, how much of a course like that do you really study and how much is that detrimental to kind of your psychology? If you know too much, do you, is it better just to kind of go in blind or do you really pick a race like that apart to try and work out how you're going to do it? Cause as you say, that's the most you've ever done uh, in, in, a, in a single day as a race. That's a significant chug, isn't it? Extra 50 K another 25%. Yeah. I mean, the week before uh, Liege Baston Liege, we went out there and as a team and, we did a recon of the final 120 k's of the race. So we knew what the final would be like. Um, and then we then reconned the final 50 kilometers of the race three times in the week following up to Liège again, just so it was clear in the mind and we knew where all of the twists and turns were of the race. So I think that's really important, especially for the final climbs, because of course that's where the race will be decided. And it's important you know, where to be positioned in the peloton for those important uh, climbs of the race. Did you, at the beginning of the season, had the team said to you like, oh, you, you know, you're on the long list for Liège or was it because of the, like, the change of the calendar they, they, they sort of picked you for the race? Because obviously you'd expect being like a first year pro like yourself, it would be more about like feeling, feeling yourself in the smaller like semi-classics. So was it, how long did you know that you were going to be racing the edge for? Well, before COVID put a spanner in the works in the season, it was always going to be one of the targets of the year. Right. So I was already informed about it since oh, okay. February, I think. So I was always really looking forward to that. And then when I found out it was cancelled, um, yeah, I was pretty devastated about that because it was something I was really looking forward to. So I was really happy to then see when, the new calendar came out that it was rescheduled again. So I've been looking forward to that since we found out about the rescheduled season. It's been a, a big goal and something I've really been looking forward to. 
And did you find like, so I did the math on pro cycling stats the other day and I, there were 22 riders that also started that race that were old enough to be your dad. So there was guys like there was one, Marco Albacini raced. He is over 20 years older than you. Like, which is it's incredible. So there would have been guys in there who have been racing as a pro for longer than you've been alive, um, or for most of your life anyway. And you, there was Chris Froome was there, Richie Port, Tom Demoulin, Van Avermaet, Roglic, Alaphilippe. That was your biggest race you've ever done. Did you like sort of look around and go, "Wow, this is pretty mad," and feel a bit starstruck to be in like the presence of these riders having before just sort of race like junior and and like smaller stage races like this was like the big time if you want on the road anyway uh you couldn't have put it better i massively had that feeling i was found myself at one point in the race next to Froome, and um just felt like a massive shock to the system i felt like i had to pinch myself because you watch these legends of the sport growing up your entire life and then suddenly you're on a start line with them and you're bar to bar with them in the race. And it's a bit of a strange feeling, but, you know, it was really cool. And I just loved every minute of racing it and just took as much of it in as I could and tried to learn as much as well. How much of a, a kind of step up was it in terms of everything, really? Just like the pace, the difficulty, the kind of the attitude of the riders. Did it feel like a home from home just with older riders or were you just like wow okay this is a whole new universe um well of course they were my first ever world tour races so i knew it was going to be a different level because it's it's the best riders in the world ultimately so of course the race speed was incredibly high especially in the final two to three hours of the race you really notice the difference in speed because it just gets faster and faster as you approach the finish, especially in a flesh well on as the breakaway had 10 minutes of an advantage at one point. So we really had to get a move on um, in the final 100Ks of the race to catch them back. And we almost didn't uh, get them back. So especially in flesh, I'd say the pace was really high, especially in yeah the final couple of hours of the race. So I think that is a big difference between even the, even like the 2.1 races that still professional race the world tour level it's um raced a lot harder and how, how many times over those over over flesh will on and also over the age bast on the age did you think i might not make this was there ever any doubt were there times where you just thought you know what <laughs> just spit me out the back and let me get picked up later uh there were certainly times where you know i was really hurting <laughs> and you have it in the back of your mind oh there's still 70Ks to go or whatever. Um, but I never had the feeling that I wouldn't finish. Um, mm. So that was that was quite nice to have. Did, you said like that was the long... So this is the, that was the longest race you've ever done, Liege, 268K. And you said that, that going over 200 during like complete unknown territory, was there... Did you suddenly feel like different? Because you get these... You, get, you actually speak to pros a lot and they say that when you get into like the sixth and seventh hour of racing... You just don't know what your body's going to do because it's so weird. Did did you like? Were you suddenly finding yourself like, oh, my legs are fine at points? Were you were you like, oh no? How was your concentration and stuff like that? Because that must be so tough when you get to like six hours of full on full gas racing just to be like all there, body and mind. 
I think it really starts to hit you, especially in that final hour of racing. You really feel yourself just absolutely knackered that you especially in Liège, of course, because it was 60 kilometers longer than flesh. Um, but yeah, you can really start to feel it in the final 40 to 20 kilometers of the race. I noticed that you just feel absolutely dead. <laughs> but, but it must be encouraging. Like, as you said, you sort of got, you were bar to bar with Chris Froome at one point. You're like, wow, this you know, seven time Grand Tour winner next to me, someone you probably idolized growing up because, you know, you would have been, what, 12 when he won his first Grand Tour. So you'd have looked up to him. and then But then to see him getting dropped before you, people like Bob Youngles and that finish behind you, he's a previous winner of that race. That must have been so encouraging that you were like still in that lead group for so quite a long time, while other big guys, big names, established World Tour pros are like going out the back. You must have been like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here to play. I'm, I'm meant to be here. That's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... I mean, you only have to look around at the finish of the race and everyone is in the same boat. Everyone is just completely destroyed. I think it has four and a half thousand metres of elevation gain on uh, the race. So, I mean, it's a massive amount to do, even though the climbs are not mainly longer than two to three kilometres. I mean, they're just just one after the other, just all day. So it's it's such a tough race and I think it takes its toll on everyone in the end. Mm. so and then as you said a few days earlier you finished 35th at Flesherlotten which is a pretty good result for your first world tour one day race I'm right in saying and you were only 40 seconds down on the winner who was Mark Hershey so you and, and I remember watching the race and I remember you being in the main pack as you hit the bottom of the the murder hui for the final time so that must have also been like an encouraging result. And did you surprise yourself by sort of getting such a good finish on that race? I kind of went into the race not expecting anything because it was my first ever race, of course, at World Tour level. So it's just so different, completely different. I imagined it would be different because, of course, you know, the best riders in the world are there. But it really is another step up that, that World Tour level. So I went into it not expecting anything and just giving it my best, giving my best for the team and um, just seeing what would happen. So as the race unfolded, I found myself near to the front and just gave it a good go. How how hard is the murder hui, by the way? Yeah, it's pretty savage. <laughs> I'm not going mean, to lie. It's <laughs> nothing compared to the climbs in Kent, but it's it's up there. It's It's certainly up there. I think we actually have a really good sort of simulation of a flesh well on type of race around where we live. We have Toys Hill and Ide Hill, what are actually very similar types of hills to yeah. the, the ones that you find in the Ardennes classics. You know, we have York's Hill, what's incredibly similar gradients to um, the Murder Hoy. So I think we actually can replicate that type of race really well around where we live here. Mm. And was it something that you found yourself fairly well predisposed to because of that cross background because it is kind of power down power down punch 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 and then a bit slower you know as you go over each one of these 11 climbs through the age do you feel like cross in any way prepares you for racing like it does i mean people like uh mercs were famously track riders and cross riders before they moved over into being more seriously and they, and they do that in the off season as well 
do you feel that's put you in a certain kind of group of riders a bit like you know your teammate now uh matty vanderpol is that going to be a new a new generational thing guys coming from the dirt and winning on the road i think it will continue to happen because it's such a good all-round sport where it trains your body so well for such a variety of cycling and um you have such great bike handling skills that you learn from cyclocross so i think it'll continue to happen yeah so i was going to say so you turned pro this year so this is your, we'll move on to sort of your first year and this was your first year as a, a full, fully fledged pro you signed with alpha and phoenix which is you know is a for the listener it's a, a pro team so it's in the second division of cycling but They've got Matteo van der Poel, who is arguably the biggest rider in the world right now. Um, and the team operates pretty much like a world tour team with the amount of invites that they get to races. Um, how, but obviously there was COVID hit and there wasn't the usual racing. It was all a bit up in the air for a, about a four or five month period. How was it turning pro, first of all? And do you feel like you've had the full experience of it yet? Because obviously you had to ride, ride a much sort of truncated, shorter calendar. Whereas if, if it had been normal, you'd have probably been racing, you know, completely different races all over Europe, etc. But you just didn't get to do this year. I think it's been a real mix of the season because I started the year off with racing and um, it was actually on a training camp in Spain where we found out that the whole calendar had been cancelled effectively. So that really put a spanner in the works and the team really had to come up with a good plan of what to do from March until the beginning of July when racing would kick off again. And there was a real unknown whether, of course, if there would be any racing at all. So I was really grateful when the season did kick off again and was able to get back on a start line because I really started to miss it. So, mm. I mean, when the racing did kick off again, I mean, the level was so high that we had to do a really good block of training before it to make sure that we was in good condition because we knew it would be a really intense a kid, season. There'd be scouts on the corner and they'd like come and tap your mum on the shoulder and be like, your son's really good. He should come play for us. Do you, is there, is there like, do you just suddenly get a phone call one day from like Alps in Phoenix? Like, Hi Ben, uh, do you want to come ride for us next year? And like, and also do you have to go do tests? Do you have to do a medical? Do you have to go do a massive FTP test? And like, oh, you know, your FTP is only 430. So... <laughs> So it was really quite an honour to be in the development team and then now be in the professional team was, um, yeah, it was the logical step and I'm happy I made that decision. And so that, has that meant you've kind of been studying alongside or did you just kind of ultimately just split off from uh, further education when you were 16? You just like piled in two all eggs in one basket of cycling at the moment. Is that that's it? Or is there other irons in the fire? Uh, I continued in education, but kind of a part-time education where I was studying a sports science course, but I studied it from home, what allowed me to be a bit more flexible. And then, of course, um, this year, it was my first year professional, so now um, my full focus is just on being a professional cyclist. And is there... I mean, obviously... You had a real taste of it already, partly because your your podium podiuming 
that's the right word, um, at uh, the biggest events in the junior calendar, um, World Cyclocross Champion. Um, and you're also working uh, and you're riding with the feeder team to a an elite pro Conti level team. But in that, making this transition to Neo Pro this year, what surprised you about the professional circuit? What didn't you know? What have you found out? I think everyone has so much respect for each other, especially within the pro teams. You really notice that in the races. Everyone is really respectful of each other. And it seems that everybody is super competitive, but everyone is kind of friendly as well. There's a friendship also involved with it. And that was a that was really nice to see because it, you know, it just shows we're in such a nice sport where everyone everyone is friendly and also competitive along at the same time. And how has it been transitioning? Obviously, as like a junior, you, because you're such a you were such a talented junior, and and you won sort of the world cyclocross championships, and you've gone from a habit of winning a lot to now having to readjust and be. It's all about you know bumping elbows, having a DS shout down your earpiece, um, you, you're jostling position all day. How has that transition been? Because it must be so different from racing as a junior, because as, as as any pro will tell you, as a junior, they won lots of bike races and you were no exception. And now you go into a place where you're against all the other guys who are the best of their year. And now you're just like bumping elbows, as you said, with Chris Froome, one side, Greg Van Avermaet, the other side, going, hey, get out of my way, I'm on this wheel. Yeah, I mean, I think it first really hit me the first time I stepped on the team bus and then it was like, wow, this is the real deal. This is, this is you know, what I've dreamed of since... Now, I was five or six years old. So I think that was, as I said, the first time it really hit me that, you know, you're now a pro and this is everything that I dreamed of since such a young age. Mm. It's now taking off. Did you get any kind of moments in that team setup where you were just like, oh yeah, now I've made it? Because I think the, old, the older professional football players will talk about cleaning boots of the actual pros in the club when they're juniors and that moment where someone else has cleaned their boots, they come in at half t- time, you know, their towels folded, there's a bit of orange there and they can just drop their boots off and they, they've got clean boots. Is there something equivalent to that stepping onto that team bus where you're just like, I'm kind of like royalty now, <laughs> whereas before I was doing a lot of stuff for myself. It does feel, feel a little bit like that in some aspects where the, the staff are just, so amazing they do such a good job for us as riders um but it's just strange where as a junior you know you're cleaning you're finishing the race you're cleaning your own bike uh, you're washing your own kit and then suddenly everybody is doing it all for you it's it's a big change and it makes you really appreciate the hard work that everyone in the team does for the riders and barring obviously barring your bikes which is the definitely number one what since turning pro what's the best bit of free kit you've been given where you've been like oh man this is this is so cool what's what's the number one bit um i absolutely love my canyon ultimate that i race on and train on it's just amazing it's it rides so well on the climbs um it's it's super fast on the straights as well for a for a lightweight bike it's um yeah it's a really complete bike and i'm really happy with it did you get all your team kit like posted out to you and like turn up at once or did you collect it when you were at a team camp? It kind of comes in 
sort of dribbles. Like it came over three to four weeks and small bits start to arrive. For example, the bike, the kit, helmets, shoes, it all kind of comes in small, small amounts. So I felt like a kid at Christmas when it was arriving, waiting for the postman to turn up. Because honestly, I can't think of anything better than getting like a box of brand new socks that I've got to the racing like, all year. I think that'd be the best. I think if I was a pro, that's what I'd be most chuffed about. It's like a box of loads of socks. I'm like, yeah, this is this is the life. Yeah, pulling on brand new white socks feels cool, I must say. Are there any, Um, because I guess that you probably only grew up knowing about why, far, why, why the tyres are faster and why disc brakes are better. You know, these conversations that rumble on in cycling, but you realise the people having them uh, all over 35. Are there kit choices when you're looking around your team and the rest of the pro peloton where you're like, guys, like, come on, <laughs> get with the programme? Um, I think you know, everyone's looking for the cutting edge in this sport. So I think most people are really performance orientated and looking for the best pieces of equipment. So I think most of the time when you look around, um, people have the best equipment and they're using the deep wheels when they know it's going to be flat and they're looking for the lightest wheels, of course, when it, when it goes uphill. So I think, I think most of the time people are, do have that in the back of their minds. Although your, your teammate Van der Poel, he, he divided opinion because he wears his socks over his leg warmers and over his tights which for some people sacrilege, but he's, he's fucking in the, he's starting a new trend. Are you a, are you a sock over the uh, warmer kind of guy or do you, do you tuck them neatly under? Uh, definitely not. I like to tuck them neatly under. Uh, I think it looks Ooh. much better. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial. Um, um, and as, as Joe will tell you, I'm somewhat obsessed by tubeless tires. I just totally think they're the way forwards. If you look at any recent study, they are the fastest tires. Is that a conversation that happens on the team bus? And why aren't more pro guys pushing to ride tubeless wheels? Yeah, because lo- lots of your lots of your team are are cross guys, so you're all about like running yeah. thirty mil tubeless tires at ten psi, right? Yeah, I think it's what. Um, I mean, I'm really happy with the tubular tires that we use. They roll super nice, and ultimately they feel good. So I'm, I'm happy with them, but. Of course, everybody's aware of these new tubeless tyres coming along that are ultra-fast and really efficient. So I think it's about what the sponsors are making and it's that it's that divide, of course, of what the sponsor wants and what's fastest. But um, yeah, the tyres we're using, I'm happy with on our team. But of course, there's always new technology coming out that we're happy to test and try also. And Joe, you mentioned there um, the, uh, you know, that link between cyclocross and and ben cyclocross and macho van der poel ben has 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 macho given you kind of any uh advice from that perspective that you both share is are you kind of more gravitating towards him in the team as someone that can you can kind of like grow with um just wondering how that kind of feels to be right next to this style as a as an up-and-coming star yourself i think it's amazing to be on a team with such a star like Van der Poel in the sport at the moment that's you know he's just won the Tour of Flanders so he's you know questionably the biggest name in cycling at the moment so to have him on the team it's it's incredible I'm always watching him to see what's he doing before the race you know where's he sitting in the race um 
all sorts of, you know, like that. Um, so it's amazing to have someone like that who's proven to be incredibly successful in this sport just to watch and uh, just take in as much as I can from what he's doing and make the most of it. So, so how, do we, how do we at home copy him? What should we be doing? What should we be doing before a race? And where, how should we be approaching something like, uh, I don't know, for people that may hopefully get back to doing sportives and might be looking at Paris-Roubaix as a sportive next year? What's the inside track? I think it's to be relaxed before you're going into these events. Because, because of course, stress is not of any help and it's incredibly easy to get stressed before a big a big uh, goal of the season or a big sportif in this this way. So I think it's just to be relaxed and to chill out, have fun and remember why you do it because ultimately everyone does it because they love the sport and they enjoy riding the bikes. How is uh, Van der Poel? Have you spoken to him much at like training camps and just sort of kicked back with him? Because obviously you guys are really similar in that here's a fun stat for you, Ben. Only two riders have ever won the Junior Men's Cyclocross World Championships twice. And that is you, and that is Matteo van der Poel. No one else has managed it. And like, no, not Sven Nees, not, not anyone. So that's like, you two are, are, are markedly similar. So has he ever sort of, have you ever sort of sort of said, oh, I've got, can you offer some advice? Have you, what's he like in like the, in the team environment? Is he like a leader? What's he, what's he sort of deal? I think he's actually incredibly humble when you, uh, you speak to him and he does have that, team leader mentality but in a real positive way where I think he really brings the group of riders on and he's really inspiring to everybody else to you know it's, everyone is happy to help him to win a race because you know he's he's so talented and he's, he's a really nice guy also off the bike so I think he's a really really good teammate to have especially in my first year as a professional as someone to yeah, he's just a massive inspiration. So I think that's really cool and nice to see. And also also looking at both of your press shots, you've both got pretty good hair, right? In your in your team team shots. How much Alperson does the team consume between you guys? Uh quite a lot. <laughs> especially on the team bus after the races. It gets used a lot, but it's it's great, especially for after the races to clean us up again. It's it's really good stuff. Highly recommend. Especially if you want good hair. <laughs> so do you do you see yourself like obviously you're 19, so you're still discovering yourself as a rider. But do you in the future you like I could be a rider like Van der Poel, one of these like have the ability to target one day races, uh classics, big big monument classics? Or are you like in your head you're like actually maybe I could transition into a Grand Tour rider? Because you're obviously improvedly as you're a very talented climber. You're also quite a sort of a lightweight, uh, punchy kind of guy. So you're not sort of like one of these massive cyclocross riders who are like 85 kilos and just put out monster watts. So do you know what kind of rider that you could be when you're older and that you're like aiming to be? My ambition is to ultimately be a GC rider. That's been my goal since I've started cycling. It's been my dream to right. be up there in the Grand Tours. And yeah, it's always been my biggest dream and my biggest goal. So I think that would ultimately be where I'd like to end up. And uh, yeah, also be able to target the likes of Liège, Paston Liège also. But I think the GC and you know those long climbs is 
it's what I like the most about cycling and hopefully that's where I can uh, make a name for myself. So you could be one of the, like obviously Teo Gagenhart surprised everyone by winning the Giro recently, but you could be one of the new, late, latest of British Grand Tour contenders with one of your competitors, Tom Pidcock, who won the Baby Giro earlier in the year and he's proven that he's really capable in fighting GC. So are we going to be seeing you in 10 years' time battling against Tom and Teo for the tour? Is that is the tour, I guess, your is the one you want to win? Because that's the one everyone wants to win, right? Yeah, I think it's been a massive dream to just be on the start line of the Tour de France. So, I mean, it would be, I'd absolutely love that. So, you know, I'll give it my best and um, continue trying to be the best rider that I can be and uh, continue developing. So I'm quite interested because you you mix cross and road. Where is your background? Is it in cross? Is that how you got into like bike racing when you were a kid? Yes, I started off uh, cycling across. I think when I was five or six years old. So I've been doing cycling for quite quite a long time now. Um, my dad started off just at a local level, riding the London Cycle Across League races, and then I think just naturally. I went along to a race and just, yeah, started cycling from there and fell in love with it instantly. And every week, every Sunday morning, you know, we'd, we would just go along and race, race cyclocross. And then normally in the summer, we would race at Crystal Palace on a Tuesday evening on the road. And that was sort of what we did from five to six until 15 to 16 to 10 years. We almost did the same. Hmm. At what point did you kind of get picked up? Um, in you know, as a um, yeah pre pre teenager, were you signed to a team or sponsor? When did that kind of when did it start dawning on you that actually, do you know what this? I could be pretty good at this. People might actually pay me to do this. I think the first time that I sort of started to see that was when I won the Koppenberg Cross as a junior for the first time, and then I think as a first year junior that was and then just I think five or six days later I podiumed at the European Championships as a first year junior and um, it was after that week that I had the call from Christoph and Philip Rudhoft if I'd be interested in riding for the development team of Alpecin Phoenix. I think that's where it really hit me and yeah things started to look good for the future and yeah it was quite an honour to have a call from such big names in the sport with the likes of the manager of Matthew van der Poel. Yeah, so did you find yourself racing you know, at that age, racing abroad um, quite a lot? Or was this, as you say, just in um, South southeastern leagues? We always started off just racing locally. And then one weekend when I think me and my brother Daniel was 14 or 15 maybe my dad took us across to Belgium to to race a cyclocross race over there and it just happened to be that it was the Flanders championships for like the youth categories and uh, me and my brother both won it was quite a shock because you hear about you know these stories of how how fast the riders are over there and we were just we were just expecting just to make it round almost but to win was yeah quite special to be over there in the motherland of the sport as we say yeah uh, I, was, I was going yeah. to say what how, how did it feel racing in front of 
chip throwing beer drinking Belgians that love cross as opposed to just one one parent and a collie dog in a drafty field <laughs> yeah it's it's totally different and it takes a little while for it to kind of settle in at first it can almost be a little bit overwhelming as you're riding past the beer tent and you know there's some dj with some massive speakers just blaring out next to you on the course so it does take a bit of getting used to and of course at the local leagues where there's only maybe 100 people around the course or even at a national trophy level race where there's probably only 300 to 400 people watching and then suddenly you have 15,000 people watching it's a massive difference it, it must be mad like in in the uk you'd turn up to cross races as you said in like kent london and and everyone would have known everyone because you're racing the same guys every week she'd so have been saying oh hey hey but I guess then you go to Belgium and the weird thing that I always find with Belgium is that like people on the street will know who you are because people are obsessed with cross and they'll know that, oh, that's Ben Tullet. He's the he's the British lad. He's like two-time junior world champ. And and it'll be like some some lady in her mid-50s. Um, and I'm, I'm sure like people would have like known who you are quite quickly when you start making them big results. Was that a bit of a weird thing for you? Because obviously you could walk down the street in the UK at the moment and probably get recognised less than walking down the high street in like Quarterite or, you know, Ghent or something like that. Yeah, I think from the cyclocross, it's such a spectator-friendly sport that you do start to pick up a fan club relatively quickly as soon as you start achieving some success over in Belgium. So that was quite a shock the first time you start to hear people shouting your name and, you know, asking for photos with you. So, I mean, it's quite special to have that. Have you got a Belgium-based fan club yet? There's a group of riders that always seems to be at the races that I'm at. Um, so I always like to give them a wave and, you know, have photos of them before and after the race. What's, what's really cool and it's fantastic to have supporters that, yeah, are so supportive of my racing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that, that's when you know you've made it, when you've got a fan club of people that turn up to see you and also... You got a Wikipedia page. At what point did you discover that you had a Wikipedia page? I don't have a Wikipedia page. I've been doing my job for ages. Nor do I. Neither does Joe. I don't know anyone with a Wikipedia page. How do you get one? Do you make it yourself? I've got no idea I even had a Wikipedia page, to be <laughs> honest. Um, so <laughs> I guess that answers that one. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I guess just ride fast and maybe someone makes it. I don't know how it works. Did, did you find, you know, because you, 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 you're obviously an incredibly talented rider um, and you do strike me as someone that is just, you know, you're hardworking and you're, you seem like a genuine, humble, hardworking dude, right? Was it hard to kind of keep that mentality when I suspect a lot of your mates when you're growing up, you know, they start going off to university, they start going to pubs, they start, you know, ostensibly wasting what for a cyclist is precious training time and sleeping time. How did you keep that head and how did you not get sucked into it? As I said before, I'd wanted to be a professional since I was five or six. So I'd always built it up in my head that this is the dream and this is what I want to do with my life. So I think everything evolved around becoming this professional cyclist and you know, wanting to be there in the big league and you know, every, all of my time and effort was to, yeah, 
try and make it as a professional. So didn't seem like such a big sacrifice at the time. I was, I was going to say, is it, and it's presumably something that you're, uh, you mentioned your dad and your, your, your parents have kind of supported you in because I know that's, that's the other difficult thing with bike racing is it takes a lot of travel, um, a lot of commitment to be dedicated. A lot, of, a lot of stuff in your bikes in the back of your car, like you're yeah. on your brother's bikes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, as and you yeah, said, driving well, you over to Belgium. Exactly. And and to do this with two kids, like, I guess, did you ever kind of have to seek permission from your parents and say, this is what I want to do? Or is it just, you know, that's, that's Ben. He's obviously going to be a pro biker. I was incredibly fortunate to have incredibly supportive parents growing up. They really supported my cycling 100%. So without them, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today. Um, so yeah, I have a lot to thank them for, really. And as you just said, you your like dream is to be a GC guy at Grand Tour, like pull on the yellow jersey. Um, you still live in Kent, which is the best place on earth for the for anyone listening, but it's not conducive to being like an in, incredible GC guy, right? And the majority of riders will eventually move abroad, move to terrain that's more suited to that. So. Is like, is it in your mind that you're gonna flop the nest soon and like head out to Europe, like a lot of British pros have to do, just to get the better weather, the better climbing? Have you sort of like been stuck, been on like Zoopla looking at flats in G- Girona and uh, or Livorno or somewhere? Well, I'm heading back to Spain tomorrow for the month to um, start to get ready, starting to get ready for the 2021 season where I can climb for. 30 to 40 minutes all uphill so yeah I'm really looking forward to that and of course there's lots of riders that live in the likes of Andorra, Girona, Nice where yeah there's there's big climbs and you can climb all day if you want so I think you know it's it's really nice to see so many people who live there and it seems like there's a really good community of riders that live in those places so I'm still only 19 years old so I still quite like living at home um I like where I live because, as you say, I think it's actually really good training where we live. The climbs are really hard. It's it's challenging riding. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure when the time comes, I'll be looking to potentially head and to live in a mainland Europe somewhere. But where that is, I still don't know. I'd go Italy if it was me. You, James? Um, it depends how much money I'm thinking of making. Maybe a tax haven. <laughs> maybe, maybe Monaco although it did look really quite rubbish being a pro stuck in Monaco in Covid at the height of lockdown you know these what ostensibly are pokey little flats that even the more wealthy people live in turbo training in your airing cupboard so yeah I, I'll go I'll go Italy Italy or Spain Italy or Spain yeah I'd, I'd go Italy just because of the food yeah but I wouldn't do all the bike riding so yeah no, it'd be a terrible place to try and lose weight actually <laughs> Um, so what's so what's next then, Ben? Like twenty twenty one, what's going to happen? You doing? Any, you racing any cross this winter? Are you all guns blazing for road? What do you like? Have you sort of chalked out any races next season that you're like, oh, I've got to do that one, or like you're going to go to the team and be like, I want to race this race? What's what's the what's the plans? There have been a few plans made with the team uh, for next year already, but first of all, we're just gonna focus on the build-up for next season and, um, yeah, just continue working hard towards the next season. And we still um, need to make a full plan for next season, but there's uh, certainly some 
certainly some plans in place already. So I'm really excited about those. And can the Bexley 10 be done in under 20 minutes? Oh, you're going to need the wind in uh, the right direction. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, I think it is possible, but I think you need that 55 on the front. I don't think the 52-14 uh, junior gears are capable of that. <laughs> you need Maybe a 55. You need a 55-11, actually a 55-10, run SRAM, 10-12 speed. And you need you need like a light towel cross out because it, you don't want full towel out because then you're into headwind on the, on, the slow, on the fast way back. So you need like light towel cross, I say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think it will be possible. I'm sure someone will do it one day. But uh, yeah, the wind will definitely play a part of it, that's for sure. It's the hardest 10 I've ever done. See, hardest 10. Hardest 10. Wow. On that note. I, I always wonder how many how many um, uh, British time trialists also happen to know HGV drivers that happen <laughs> to start off at certain times. That, to me, seems like the difference. You get sucked along by one of those things. Yeah, you need to slipstream. Slipstream uh, uh, Eddie Stobart on the way back <laughs> and you'll be laughing. Great. Well, Ben, thank you so much for yes spending the time with us. Um Joe was saying that you're off on a, a training ride this morning, so I'm assuming there's more riding to be done this week. Or is he, do you kind of kick back looking at the weekend now? Or do the miles ratchet up? Oh, he's off to Spain, isn't he, James? Oh, he's, yeah, obviously. He's on a flight. Yeah, on he's a flight. On a, and you straight... A COVID, a co- yeah, COVID, COVID secure flight. COVID secure flight, yeah. Two, and hopefully a space space between each each passenger, not like Ryanair, where they just go, huh, you know, a metre? Yeah, how about 30 centimetres? Yeah, I hope so also. Yeah, as I said, I'm heading back tomorrow to Spain to start getting ready for 2021 so really looking forward to that and getting back into the thing into the swing of uh full training again and yeah working towards next season's goals nice one but yeah thanks for joining us ben um and good luck with next season thank you for having me on the show it's no worries man despite what some may say aero isn't dead that's right Canyon has just produced its fastest ever road bike, the new Canyon Aero CFR. To celebrate this incredible new bike, Canyon is offering all Cyclist Magazine podcast listeners a free bike guard worth $18.99 with the purchase of any road bike or e-gravel bike. All you need to do is use the code CYCLIST2020, that's CYCLIST2020, at the checkout. Full terms and conditions are below in the episode description, the offer is valid until midnight on the 31st of October. So that was Ben Tullett, James. Really lovely kid, I guess. He's 19. Made us feel very old. The uh, youngest rider to finish Liège, Baston Liège, since 1909. How about that? How about that? I mean, that's that's a serious feat, isn't it? That is a really arduous um, classic. It is definitely worth its salt as a monument. And uh, one thing I didn't know, I did actually look this up. I've heard it referenced so many times. They call it Le Doyen, mm. which means basically the old lady, which is mm. quite a nice, nice, cute name for it because it's the oldest monument dating back to 1892. And it has had a couple of uh, kind of crazy additions because you're talking about this is what popped into my head when you asked, when you mentioned to Ben, like, you know, it's longer than whoever, who was the guy, Victor Faster, you said, Victor was the guy in 19, yeah, 1909. And you said, actually, you know, what you did, Ben, was probably tougher because it was 20K longer 
than Victor's race in 1909. To that, I would say, my friend, yes, it was 20k longer. And yes, Ben rode it 11 kilometers an hour faster. However, Victor rode it on a bike that probably had wooden rims. If he was lucky, he had two gears. Mm. If he was lucky, I mean, if he was lucky, it might have weighed less than 16 kilos. <laughs> and who knows? I mean, we don't even, you know, when they say like, as, as since records began, when they're talking about that with weather, mm. records didn't even stretch. We don't even know what the weather was like in the 1890s. It was probably awful. Well, it was and, probably fine from the confines hard. of a train that he probably took to the finish. Because let's be honest, most races back then were won by someone getting on a train. Well, that was the funny thing is that the old route of Liège went up to a train station. It turned around at a train station in Baston. Uh, in like in Spa, I think it's a little town called Spa, and nothing to do with the shop. Nothing to do with the shop. Mm. Interesting. Maybe it was. I know. We should probably research that. Perhaps it was the home of it. And just lo- loads and loads of riders was like, screw this for a game of tin soldiers, and got on the train. Because can you imagine that? Like halfway through a race, being tempted with a train ride home. <laughs> I mean, I've been out. tempted by train rides home on a like a anyway. nice sunny training ride. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, he's you know, home of some really quite amazing moments. Obviously, the classic one being Bernardino with his uh, hardly any clothes on, his massive red balaclava, and some weird woolen jersey he's got from somewhere. But still... Neige, Baston Neige, as as they call it, because that means snow, Baston snow in French. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, so it snowed so much in that edition. That you started, they started with something like so 174 riders. Do you know how many finished in 1918? Like 40, 21. Oh. So 21. And the mad, and the other mad thing is that in that, I in the, in my head, Bernardino is is always has always been like 40. Mm. Like he's a man, isn't he? He's a proper man. Man strength, yet, chest hair. Yeah, yeah. He's got dad strength from like mm. day dot. Um, and he was like 26 riding that race. And you just oh, so he was my age. Yeah, he was basically my age, based on my age. He was 26, <laughs> smashing it. Uh, but he did say that he never regained the use of the fingers in, like, some of the fingers in his right hand properly. Didn't uh, stop him punching that farmer a few years later, did it, though? No, or wrestling that guy off the stage at the um, uh, tour when he was presenting the Lions or whatever. Someone got up on stage that wasn't supposed to be there. So it was clearly <laughs> absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, so it just made him more angry. Yeah. Oh, Bernie, we do, we do love you, Bernie. I've I just, yeah, he's such a, such a great, impressive, impressive rider to kind of just watch on on TV. Someone described him as a, an Elvis on the bike. That was Carlton Kirby, wasn't it? Mm. An Elvis on the bike and a killer off the bike. Perfect, perfect way of Actually, describing him. No, it wasn't because it's completely the other way around. We won't <laughs> bother editing that out. But yeah, put that the other way around. It was a, he was a killer on the bike. And he was an Elvis off the bike, whereas Eddie Merckx was just an Elvis through and through. Check out those sideies. Um, but yeah, uh, fair play to to Ben. That is uh, quite amazing. But I think the most exciting thing for me mm. was hearing about your mutual love of Kent and also hopefully Ben's attempt to do this time trial in under 20 minutes. I mean, our mutual love of the Q1027. Uh, to all time trialing connoisseurs, they'll know it because it is one of the harder ten time, ten mile time trials in the country. You know, you don't you don't get many that start with a kilometer at seven percent. 
Uh, it's, it's straight out the gate. That is. It's horrible. basically you go out and then within the first five hundred meters you're at the bottom of that climb. Yeah, so it's a it's a tough old test. Um, and it's his his time of twenty one oh nine or twenty one oh seven. I think he said official timekeepers had it at twenty one oh nine. Is is mightily mightily impressive. So um, I mean that's at least four minutes faster than the fastest time I've ever done. Um, but then again, I don't ride professionally with Matteo van der Poel. Um, <laughs> that's true you don't ride professionally full stop as in no you know i mean i mean that in the nicest possible sense you don't just get to only focus on cycling every yeah. single day i tell you who definitely has only focused on cycling is uh jonathan schubert do you know who he is james uh jonathan schubert not the composer no uh, so, so talking of talking of time trials he is he has just set the fastest record to ride 100 miles. So the 100-mile time trial record is an easier way of saying it. He just set a new record of under three hours. What? That's insane, isn't it? He rode, I'm, I mean, he did it on a very busy dual carriageway. I've seen a video. It looks terrifying. He's just being overtaken by Eddie Stobart's every <laughs> <laughs> while thundering along at sort of 60 kilometers an hour himself. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me look this up. I think I think I found this story. Uh, yeah, so he did it in 2 hours, 57 minutes, 58 seconds. So that gives him an average speed of just over 53 kilometers per hour. How? For 100 miles? Yeah. That's, that's insane. Like, was he doing this downhill? I don't get it. Like, if he's doing that on the road for 100 miles, and I guess you can argue that he's got the draft effect of traffic, yeah, of articulated uh, lorries. Yeah, but shouldn't he? Because this isn't this. By the way, yeah, she point out this is not like Matey Boy who did the um, whose dad drove a NASCAR um, thing, and he John Orne. Yeah, how how far did he go? Did he, he, he rode at 150 miles an hour or something for like 27 <laughs> days? <laughs> About that. Yeah. So wasn't it? So he, this guy, uh, jo- this this uh, Johnny lad, Johnny Schubert. He wasn't doing it drafting. He's just on a time trial bike, uh, teardrop helmet, skin suit, you know. So I'm like, mate, you should be getting in and doing an hour attempt because we go, uh, and I know it's been broken since, but yeah, 55 kilometers an hour is around about, um, is like a very, very, very sharp end competitive time. I can't remember what quite the hour record stands at, at the moment. But yeah, he's not far off it and he's doing that for 100 miles. So anecdote about Jonathan Schubert, um, I've actually met him before and he is just like an amateur rider who lives out in Dubai. He's from the UK, but lives out in Dubai. Uh, and he came over to race the Catford Hill Climb, which is the oldest continuous bike race in the world. It takes yes, place it on York's Hill uh, in Kent, 25% climb. Um, it's one of the most... Sort of... in Kent with everything you yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to, it's sponsored. Um, but he, so he came along to, to race it. Um, and he turned up on a what I thought was a specialised S-Works tarmac. And I took some photos of it for cyclist.co.uk and for a, a mag piece we actually did uh, until he told me that it was a fake S-Works tarmac that he'd bought from China for 250 quid and built up with uh, Dura-Race componentry and weighed no more than 5.2 kilograms. Um, he then thought he'd won the race According to his Garmin, he'd set a time of 1.50, which was something like three seconds off of the course record that's been held since the 1980s. But 
the timekeepers didn't allow it because he then, after immediately going over the finish line, turned around to ride back down to get a jacket. So they didn't recognise his actual time, and it caused a lot of controversy. Oh dear! Yeah, so but, he didn't, and he didn't win. He didn't win. He came like ninth in the end because the time they did take was like about ten, fifteen seconds, sort of slower than he what he told us that he had wow. done. But yeah, that's that's I mean, that is really impressive, though, that he can basically smash a very long time trial, but also pretty much, you know, well, e- yeah, even even with this adjustment, finish top 10 in a hill climb, mm. because a hill climber is a very specific breed of person in terms of their physiology. And a time trialist is is also is, is very different, compar- normally very different in comparison. So fair play someone signed this man mm. or maybe i don't know maybe life is just more lucrative uh in the united arab emirates i i, I would assume that's the case um on that note should we bring an end to the episode james i uh, think we should Joe. i've, I've got, got to go get and isolating you can you've got to get to back to going outside um isolating i guess is just sitting on your own in the corner of a room yeah i can't even like talk to my other half who i live with i'm just sitting in my office um staring at the bike I can't build. Anyway, um, (laughs) thanks again for joining us on this episode. Uh, If you are a regular listener, how about suggesting us to one of your cycling friends, to your cycling club? Um, Let let people know if you like what we're doing, that they should give us a listen. Uh, We've got some really cool ideas coming up for the rest of the year and into next year uh, for the podcast. Leave us a review on Apple uh, comment if you like what we're doing too um, and any feedback any anecdotes any stories you've got about I don't know Ben Tullet or riding 100 miles on a dual carriageway do let us know because we'd love to talk to, about them on the podcast but for now uh, James I'll bid you adieu to Lou Joe yeah. a lovely lovely two weeks <laughs>